Okay, so today I'm here with Matt Wise, who is the CEO of Q Interactive. Um, and I've known Matt through a friend, I guess, for, for a little while and came to an event of mine in New York. Um, Matt, thanks a lot for being here today. My pleasure, Adrian. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and a little bit about Q Interactive. I, I don't actually know much about Q Interactive apart from the fact that you run Cool Savings. Sure. Well, that's a that's an excellent place to start. Um, we do own and operate Cool Savings, and as a matter of fact, the company used to be called Cool Savings. We were publicly traded. We went public in 2000, right as bubble burst. I think our stock price went up about 10% before plummeting about 90%. So for all of those of you who invested early on, uh, I wasn't part of the company, so don't blame me. But anyway, uh, the, the business is actually an interesting one because its origin was in coupons, and that's what Cool Savings was all about. But over time, what occurred was we were getting paid, you know, six cents a print per coupon. And uh, players like Uncle Ben's came to us and said, this printing coupons is great, and we'll pay you six cents for each one. But, you know, we really want to talk to our consumers. We want to open a dialogue with them. So if you could, uh, instead of printing a coupon for them, get them to sign up for a newsletter and raise their hand for permission to talk to them, um, we'd love that, and we'd pay you $2 a person. So for us back in our offices, at the time we were a little slow, and we said, six cents, two dollars, six cents, two dollars. I wonder which one we should do. So luckily, uh, by 2004, we figured out that this lead generation thing was um, was really the way to go, and that advertisers really wanted to start um, a dialogue with consumers, and they wanted us or a firm like us to figure out who were the right folks to talk to and who was actually going to convert, as opposed to them just going out and buying general banners. Um, thus was born the concept of a lead gen network. Um, so we had been doing lead generation on the site since about 99. By 2004, we had inverted the model and made it uh, available to other publishers. And as a frame of reference, when we were a public company, we were doing about $30 million in revenue on cool savings. Um, in the fourth quarter of 2004, we did about $5 million in our newly formed lead generation ad network. And then in 2005, we did about $37 million on the network and about $30 million on our historical cool savings. So in the span of 18 months, we became a, uh, we shifted the entire business model from a cool savings centric business to an ad network centric business. And that has continued to grow. Um, the lead generation business and the publisher business continues to grow and we have expanded outside of just lead generation and into email. And all of this is founded upon a, a simple concept, which is the best way to match consumers and advertising, we have found, is to use very rich data for the targeting. So that may sound like a bit cliche and a bit boring and what everybody else does, but the reality is since we sit behind registration usually, or we're doing email where we have access to the registration information, we know a tremendous amount about the consumer. We know their name, we know their address, we know their age. Um, from that, we can buy external databases so we can figure out creditworthiness and a variety of other things. And we use all of that to come up with uh, advanced targeting algorithms to figure out the right offer for this consumer at a given time. And then on the fly, we take all of our predictive modeling and we test that in the open marketplace. So it runs against the network and hundreds of thousands of people come in and we're constantly saying, Does, is this predictive model predicting consumer activity accurately? Are people really taking this particular offer the most? And so it's constantly right, reaffirmed. Yeah. 
Um, so what happened to Cool Savings? I mean, the, the original idea was that it's, it's coupons and people can sign up and get coupons. And so you, you, just got, you just gravitated towards the lead generation business and naturally defocused on the coupon stuff. Is that how it works? Yeah, for all intents and purposes. The Cool Savings still exists. The site still exists, and we still have coupons on there. Um, but we actually sold the coupon technology about a year ago to News America. So although we still run what is one of the largest, if not the largest, coupon destination site, um, we don't power the coupons. We, we outsource that aspect of it. And so, and your focus is, are you more of, when you say network, are you a co-registration network generating leads? Ah, uh, co-registration, yes. Most people would think of us as a co-registration network. The reason we, we call ourselves a lead generation network as opposed to a co-registration network is people can't sign up. The old model of co-registration was you sign up for one thing and you're automatically signed up for two or three more. We right. never allow a consumer to sign up for offers simultaneously. They always have to go through an additional step read more about a particular offer, confirm that they're really interested in that offer. But for the clarity and simplicity for folks, uh, when they think about it, yes, we're usually post-registration or a co-registration player. Do you allow uh, pre-check leads, or do you, so you always force them to go through at least one more step? Uh, we do allow pre-check leads, but whenever you have a pre-check lead, they have to go through one more step. So we, we view the pre-check as a recommendation. So if there's 20 offers on a page, Five of them may be pre-checked. Those are our recommendations. If a person hits submit at the bottom of that page, they have to read more about each one of those offers. If we have what's called an easy opt-in, where it's just a one step, which is about, I think, a half a percent of our revenue. We don't recommend it to advertisers, but if someone really wants to drive uh, slightly less qualified volume, um, we do allow that, but we don't allow it to be pre-checked, meaning if it's only a one-step opt-in, they have to actively check it on their own. So let's say I'm a user going through your site and I see and I sign up for see, uh, five offers pre-checked and I hit submit. What does it mean by I have to read more? Does that mean I have to take an initial an extra step to say yes, I do want all those five offers? Yes. So what happens specifically is let's say you picked uh, the Walmart offer, the J.C. Penney offer, and um, this Disney Music Club offer. So you pick those three, you press submit. What will happen is for each one of those, uh, a new page will load. And it will say, here's all the information that we've got on you that we're planning to pass to Disney. Here's, we always ask another custom question so the consumer has to interact with the ad so we know it's a bona fide person and the person has to hit submit again. And there's always a skip button there so they can say, oh, now that I understand what I'm signing up for, I don't want to do this. Because some of them have expenses like Better Homes and Garden Magazine. You may get the magazine in the mail and you have to pay for it eventually. So we want to make sure that's all clearly disclosed to the consumer before they press submit. As a matter of fact, for some of the more of stuff, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, obviously that kind of stuff in the past has been quite problematic with the the, the pre-checked and you know you go through someone's registration path and you end up with ten zillion emails coming in every day. Um, it, I mean, is what, with what you're doing now, is that avoiding that kind of stuff of people getting overwhelmed and you know never wanting to come back to whatever the site was again? Right. If done appropriately, it's not bad for the consumer at all because the consumer always knows what they're signing up for. Um, two things can go awry, though. So, it, yes, it does get, it avoids the old, which is why we hate to use the word co-registration. It avoids the old situation where you, you came in and signed up for one site, and all of a sudden you got signed up for ten other things, and you didn't know it. So a consumer always knows it's impossible, actually, to get through and say, I didn't know I signed up for the gap. Because not only did you get the little pre-checked or unchecked box that you had to check, 
but then you got this fuller page, which you had to interact with. You had to confirm all your information. You had to answer another question and hit submit again. And then actually for complicated ones where we have a telephone call following it or something like that, we actually do a triple opt-in where after you press submit, we'll put a little warning box up that says, hey, did you really read this closely? Someone's going to give you a call. Are you sure you want a call? And they have to press submit again. So rarely does do we run into consumer problems where they've signed up for too many things. What we do find, however, is there are some less scrupulous players in the field that when you sign up for a site, they take your data and they resell it to five or six other players. And so you've only signed up for one site, but now you're getting mail from six other players and you don't know how, you, you're, why are you getting this information. And the reason is because, because you your data is being resold. As you went through the sign up. Exactly. And so what's your policy on that kind of stuff? So our policy is um, that permission should go be clear and conspicuous, meaning it should be on the page in one of two formats, either a what we call an active opt-in, uh, which is there's a checkbox and it's not checked, so you're probably going to get about a 20% conversion there, or what we call a passive opt-in, where we pre-check the opt-in box, but it clearly says, hey, you're opting in for mail. Um, and you can state right there if you're opting in for mail from, let's say, Cool Savings, or you're opting in for mail from Cool Savings and other parties. So the consumer can say, ooh, well, I don't want that, and can clearly uncheck it. And we think every time a piece of mail is sent, it should say, hey, you signed up on, for instance, Cool Savings. That's why you're getting this piece of mail. And the consumer should always be able to, with one click, say, well, I don't want to get any other mail from Cool Savings or anybody else that you gave permission to at that time. If you do all that, you put all the power in the in the consumer's hands. And it still allows for direct marketers and promotional marketers to run a robust business. It just enables the consumer to have a choice of whether they want to opt into it and then, two, easily have an ability to get out of it. The way I've heard um, one guy to, who, who does a lot of email talk about it is um, when you get some email addresses like through co-registration, you're getting those email addresses at the same time as a bunch of other guys, so you've got to send them the more mail sooner until they stop using that email address. Right. So that's what the unscrupulous players do. There is a race literally to the minute to get out mail. And the, the most common practice is what, something we call brand spawning. So, for instance, you sign up for a site, and this is most prolific in the, in the free giveaway site, so you sign up for free iPods. Five minutes later, literally, you get a piece of mail from uh, greatstuff.com. You have no idea, and someone owns the URL. I'm not, this is for example purposes only, um, but you get something from greatstuff.com. You never signed up for greatstuff.com. You have no idea how they got their, your email address, and what happened was is the free iPods folks sold your name, and now they're, they're banging it. And so the unscrupulous players will sell that to 5, 10, even 20 players, and all of them race to get the mail out because they know in days or a few weeks that mailbox is going to have literally thousands of pieces of mail in it and it's going to die so or it's going to become unproductive. So they want to get in as quickly as possible before it becomes unproductive. But again, that the players who participate in that are not good players. I mean, that, yeah. there is, uh, that occurs out there, but that is definitely the low-end players who are doing that. Yeah, and, and actually I'll just add in as a note, like in, in the free iPod example, I, I actually um, interviewed and he was there, the, the guy, the free iPod guy was there at our cocktail, and they were uh, doing some email stuff in the beginning, but his overall yes. concept of what he wanted to do with the free iPod program was to create a brand, and so they stopped doing any kind of email follow-up um, fairly shortly into the program. 
Yep. So, and so if you want to create a brand, yeah, they, that email practice will kill you. So. Yeah. All right. Um, and the Gratis folks did. I mean, they did a fantastic job. They were one of the early pioneers in this, and they did a fantastic job at it for a long time. Yeah, right. So the, 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 basically the way you started out was with the coupons network and then people signing up for coupons. You then had uh, companies saying, hey, um, coupons are nice, but we want, we want leads and we'll pay more for leads. So you put the, 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 the registration path behind the sign-up process for cool savings, you then started to see that, hey, this is working really well, this, this co-registration stuff or uh, lead generation stuff, and so we'll, we'll start to make this the focus of our business, and then you start taking out that uh, registration or the, the lead generation process and taking that to other businesses so that they can also generate leads for you. Is that, is that a correct evolution? That's a precise evolution, yep. The one, the one thing that's uh, a step in there, which you didn't mention, but it's an important one, is you know, not only did we find out that lead generation was a good idea, but when we had so many advertisers coming to us who wanted lead generation, we ended up with a very simple problem of what advertisers should we put up. And so thus was born the beginning of our yield management system. And so right now, you know, doing lead generation is a relatively simple concept on the surface. You put in, you know, Walmart wants leads, you put the Walmart offer up, someone fills it out, and you send a data feed to Walmart. Where it gets complicated is predicting what consumers actually want Walmart and when the Walmart offer is going to yield higher than, let's say, the Disney offer or the Target offer or the mortgage offer or whatever else it may be. And so that's where you get the higher-end players are building very complex uh, algorithms and mathematical equations to predict that. And then there's a whole other business on the back end of that of how do I confirm that this person was bona fide? Not only in the user experience we try to do that, but we do it in the background by cleaning up addresses, checking on addresses, um, preparing the data to be sent over to the client, etc. So there's a, you know, on the surface we all look similar because we all arrive at a page and there's a form there. But as you know, everything from how that form was presented and then what happens in the background, there's a tremendous amount of work that occurs. And so those tools we built up along the way also. And so what kind of um ECPMs can people see for their site um, by adding your registration path? It stretches anywhere. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't, yeah, actually, so I don't know this model that well, so I don't know what the monetization term, whether that's ECPM or, or something else. No, ECPM is, is what we use. Um, and so it, it depends on the implementation. So you, we have people at the low end who are doing what we would call uh, the softest touch possible. So they may be presenting only six offers, uh, no pre-checks, and they'll exclude some of the more hardcore direct marketing players who pay high premiums. So on those, you may be talking about on a page a $75 CPM, which for most people, if they could get a $75 CPM on a banner impression would be fantastic. That's at the very low end. Um, at the high end, uh, our, our best you know, our best performers who have the most aggressive paths, who you got to go through a lot of work to get through, quite frankly, um, probably peak out at, uh, oh, I would say $1,800 CPM. So, you know, it's a dollar eighty a, a person. Um, so there's a large span in between. Our average is around $500 CPM. I think it's about 520 
So from the point of view of the user, like you're going through to do something and then you're getting put through one of these hard registration processes that you end up being worth a dollar eighty a person. How did, I guess that does all back out for the advertiser. I mean, it seems astonishing that that works. I mean, what is in the user's mind? Like, why are they saying, I've got to complete this next offer? I have to fill this stuff in. Right. So they, the key is, and what we demand of all of our publishers is, that the consumer never feels they have to fill it in. So there are, I mean, again, you're getting into... This is why this industry is a little complicated. There are unscrupulous players who insinuate to the user that they have to fill something out in order to get to the next page. So we control and, and demand of all of our publishers that they never put any language that may infer, insinuate, or anything else that an offer has to be taken. Because otherwise you start to degrade the quality of leads you send in. But the reason these folks can generate such a high CPM is, and most of those high CPMs are generated on promotional sites, is they attract consumers who like to sign up for stuff. And I know that may sound crazy, and many folks think that um, you know high-end sites like About.com is one of our partners, and wow, signing up for a newsletter there is going to be a higher-quality individual than somewhere else. The reality is those are good people. However, the folks who come to promotional sites really like to sign up for stuff. It's just in their nature. So when they come to the site, they see, and our offers are, you know, many of them are very good. You know, there's discounts, there's uh, newsletters of interest for everything under the sun, there's discounts on magazines. So they end up looking through there and finding a lot of stuff they like and signing up for a bunch of it. And again, to generate a dollar eighty a person, although from a $1,800 eCPM sounds egregious, about 40%, 40 to 50% of the people who come to our page find something they're interested in. So, you know, most banners have a click-through of two-tenths of a percent. We have about a 40% conversion rate, meaning people come to the page, find something they like, fill out the form, press submit. So if we're getting, on average, on that side, a dollar a conversion, well, that's already generating, um, you know, 50 cents. So if they convert on three offers, they sign up for, you know, just a few of them, then they've got a dollar fifty or a $1,500 eCPM. And then if you take that a, a step further, that some of the leads that we generate, if it's an education lead or a mortgage lead, these highly qualified leads, you know, those people are paying $30, $40, $50 a lead. So you don't have to sign up a heck of a lot of those people to make the, the needle really move. And so then, and, and while this is all going on, you have your, your process optimized so that it's always it's putting the best, most high perform, uh, most revenue generating leads first. So that's to the publisher's interest and also to your interest and, and therefore potentially to the consumer's interest because they're, they're getting the, shown the offers where, or I get, well, I don't know whether that's necessary, the offers they can spend the most money, but maybe the offers that are most relevant to them. Right. So the, the algorithm works much like Google in the fact that the, who gets shown at the top of the page is actually a combination of propensity to click and convert, so how attractive is the offer, and then the rate paid by the advertiser. So the two of those together result in yield. And then the yield is not just across all consumers. So it's not like we say, on this site, this is the best performing offer. We say, in front of this consumer on this site, this is the best performing offer. So, you know, a woman age 23 is going to see a radically different set of offers than a man aged 55. You know, a 23-year-old woman may see a lot of uh, Pampers, Walmart, JCPenney, et cetera, Disney Book Club because we're aiming at their propensity to have children, et cetera, and an older male may have uh, mortgage refinance or automotive loan or uh, retirement or AARP or who knows what um, that matches up with them. 
So um, an interesting case is, uh, are you familiar with the, the social networking site called Tagged, tag.com? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm generally familiar with it. I, don't, I can't say I'm part of it. <laughs> Yeah, it's more for teens. Um, Alexa rank 120, um, using viral marketing pretty effectively, generating about 300,000 leads, um, sign-ups per day. So that's sign-ups to the site. Um, and, and so Greg's the CEO. He put uh, co-registration on his sign-up process, and that was sort of a big breakthrough, I think, that helped bring the, the site to being uh, profitable. Um, mm-hmm. Is that the sort of site you like to work with, and then do you use the, the data points you're collecting on users to help target those better? I mean, how, how, does, how do you work with a, a site like Tagged? Yeah, so um, through, uh, yes, we love, and social networking we think is a fantastic spot just because consumers are providing uh, information, and there are people who are willing to provide information, which is one of the keys to our targeting and the success of lead generation. You need to find people who are willing to pass over that information. Um, you know, the, one of the challenges we have in, in, um, in social networking is the youth aspect of it. If we go too far down the youth level, we can't monetize people under 13. Um, so there's a, there's a break point there. And then there's just a break point in how much revenue you can generate off of the 13 to 21 year old group. Um, it's, it's tremendously valuable from a, uh, impression and display arena, meaning there are many advertisers who want to influence that group, but the price points paid uh, by many of the advertisers in lead generation are higher for people who have higher incomes and have the ability to convert so they have credit cards, etc. Um, that's so do we want do we like social networking? You bet that's it's a great segment and um, and for a player like that, we probably most of the stuff is automated. It's going to pick out the particular offers, but we may work on some creative implementations and push some more youth-oriented uh, offers up the spectrum so that uh, they can get in front of their users. So what, what is the ideal kind of traffic that you want most? Is it, is it women age 30 to 50? Um, it's actually, yes, very, very close to that. Um, it is uh, women probably aged uh, just a little younger than that, probably 25 to 50. And... The reality is we like all traffic, uh, and I know that sounds a little uh, ubiquitous, but the 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 selection of offers, we have about 1,500 advertisers a year running through the system, so we have offers that appeal to all the different segment groups, whether they're retirees, young people, old people, et cetera. But those who monetize the absolute best are middle-aged women, uh, are not even a little younger and then middle-aged women. They just shop more online. They buy more online. They're more willing to sign up for things online, uh, et cetera. So when one of these goes onto a site, um, I mean, does it affect the branding of the site? I mean, the people look at that and say, man, you know, now this site used to be really good, and now they're wanting me to get a, a free gift card and, or uh, they, they want me to fill in my information for, um, so I can be called back by, you know, whoever. Does, does that does that actually have a detrimental effect on sites if they add, add your um, lead generation path in? Not not if they do it right. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, if you there there are a tremendous number of ways to handle the execution of the advertising. So if you handle the advertising with um, with the consumer in mind that they can always get out of it easily, then it's not a problem. It's just like an interstitial on the New York Times. You know, when you get that interstitial, as long as the skip button is there. No one really minds. You know, if the ad is of interest, they look at it. If it's not of interest, they click on skip and they get by real quick and get to their article. So same thing with us. We put up 
10 offers in between. Someone signs up and the user experience is, thanks for signing up. We have these 20 offers we thought you might be interested in also. So right there, what happens is, is one, you've, you've positioned it as a positive to the consumer that we found something of interest. Two, as long as you work with a player like us or another high-end player, those offers that show up actually will be of interest. There'll be something likely on the page. Again, half people convert, so most likely there's going to be something on the page that's of interest to them. But if there's not, if they have zero desire to interact and, or nothing on the page is of interest, as long as with a single click they can say skip and move on, then we find there to be zero interference with or bad uh, impressions with the uh, the consumer. And the, we reflect on that in two ways. One, we can track how many people abandon the site in our advertising. So we say that is a not the, best, the optimal user experience. And we can see as publishers choose to get more aggressive, put more ads up, put more pages up, that attrition rate gets higher. And then secondarily, we work with advertisers who often pass us, uh, publishers who often pass us back um, back-end statistics. So they'll say, hey, we did an A-B split test where 50% of our users went through your path and 50% didn't, and we saw that you know there was a 10% degradation of interactions of that consumer once they passed through your path. And so depending on how big that degradation is, we can see if we've affected the user experience or the brand experience in the back-end. Now, a little degradation is okay, because the reality is, is a consumer only has a limited amount of time to interact with a site. You know, many sites have a, a four-minute interaction time. So if they're on my pages for a minute and a half of that or two minutes and they're filling out a couple of offers, then they get to the core website. Well, they probably have less time to interact with the core website, which is okay for some folks because let's say, you know, they earn a dollar off of my registration or even 50 cents. And then when they go to their regular website, they maybe peruse through 15 pages on average, and each one of those has a you know a $3 CPM. So they only earned $15 or 15 cents in the back end, but they earned 50 cents off of us. Maybe we burned 10% of their time, so they only made 14 or 13 cents on the background, but they still made 50 cents off of us. So it was a huge gain. So that's what we try to keep an eye on. If you don't, if you're not scrupulous about it, if you're not careful about it, though, yeah, you can definitely stack up a bunch of ads, take away the skip button, and make it very difficult for the consumer to move on, and then the uh, the experience becomes one that is substantially less positive. So one of my friends is uh, Drew Curtis, who runs Fark.com. Have you ever heard of that site? Fark.com? Yeah. Yeah, I, I just saw him out at uh, at the Venture Summit last week. Oh really? I didn't. I didn't talk with him personally, but he was up on a panel. Seems like a great guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, um, and he's come to a couple of my events. Um, he, I've talked with him about this sort of stuff on his site, and his kind of viewpoint is he's he's pretty anti advertising anyway. He's more of a, a tech guy, really. But his mm-hmm. viewpoint is, look, you know, my guys, they're, they're, they're Linux users or um, general US. Um, they're male, um, eighteen to I guess forty or fifty. I think he talked about. And mm-hmm. um, they, they, they're using Firefox and they're running ad blockers and you know they complain about advertising and all that kind of stuff. How would you work with someone like Drew? So we we do uh, we definitely would work with Drew, and the the implementation we would use, given his user base, would be slightly lighter, meaning we wouldn't we'd make sure we didn't put too many barriers up in front of the consumer. But again, the the ads that are shown will be shown in an, an optional format, meaning they can say, hey, something is of interest on this page or not. And for the FARC.com folks, I actually think it would be a good user experience because the nature of FARC.com is 
I'm coming here to peruse through a bunch of interesting news sites and funny stories, um, and I'm going to pick out the ones I want to read about. So our advertising will be presented in the same exact way. Here are 20 ads and offers that we thought you might be interested in. Peruse through, pick out the one you want. If you don't like any, keep moving on. So the paradigm Would is you put perfect for their site. Between the, the articles, like when someone clicks on an article, or are you, or are you suggesting? Because that, he, I talked to them about that, and he said that would create like a revolution. He felt. Um, <laughs> or would it be when when a user signs up to the site, or would it be some some ads on the site? In which case, he's mentioned that while it gets a ton of traffic, um, the click-throughs on ads tend to be fairly low. Yep. So I would do uh, two things. One, I would do. Maybe even three. I would do uh, registration. Um, you can't you can't bang on people every single time they're on the site with this interrupted flow or every time they click on an article. It's kind of like an interstitial. If every time you clicked, you got another interstitial, you'd get annoyed. But if you came to the site and once every time you're on the site or once an hour or whatever maybe, you got an interstitial, that'd be fine in my opinion. I don't think many users would have a problem with that. And they all know they're getting free content, so the message can be, hey, check out these offers from our sponsors. One, we've not just picked random ones. we picked ones we think you're interested in. Two, you understand we're advertising-driven, so this is how we make our money. And three, if you don't like it, no problem. Just click close or click skip, and you can go back to reading your articles. So we would probably recommend they do it on registration, and then uh, at some intermittent time, you know, maybe every 10th article or something like that, uh, they get one of these, and I'd probably use the equivalent of an interstitial, and which there were maybe 10 offers on there, and, and they got to pick from one of the 10. And if they didn't want to do it, they'd press skip and keep moving on. Hmm. And I'd probably, the, the especially for... I'm oh, sorry? I was going to say, especially for FARC.com, I would lead with a message of why I was putting this up. That, hey, I'm not putting this up to annoy you. I'm putting this up because we're an advertising-driven site. Yeah, someone and see he'd he'd have a, a revolution on his hands, and I mean because they're a loud and noisy group, so they'd be they'd be complaining an incredible amount. Um, but it's, at the end of the day, it's whether they stop using the site or whether they, they continue using it, and, and it generates revenue. His his average user does um, comes to the site and and clicks on two two news news articles when they come, and I guess they come every every day or every couple of days. So maybe you'd suggest like once every five click throughs they get shown something. Yeah, something like that. So, you know, they wouldn't necessarily even see it every day. They'd see it every couple of days. And then something like that. What what do you think, um, how much revenue do you think that would generate per, per showing? Um, yeah, much less because uh, when you get someone fresh through registration, there's where you're going to get your big dollars. Um, your in, intermittent tags later on, you know, you might be down on the $20 CPM or something like that. And on the registration, on a FARC.com, you know, I would guess he would be up uh, around the, you know, we'd probably do a light implementation, so maybe a $350 CPM. So, I mean, for a player like that who does large volumes, I mean, there's, I mean, some of our players we write enormous checks for uh, because they have large volumes, and there's, you know, if you're registering a lot of people, I mean, it's just an enormous money to be made. Most sites don't have a large registration base. I mean, most sites are registering you know, hundreds a day, maybe if they're very large, you know, a thousand a day. But some of these social network sites, some of these viral sites are registering in the tens of thousands and, uh, a day. And when you're in the tens of thousands and you're getting paid, you know, 50 cents a, a registration, it's an awful lot of money every day. Day in and day out. If, um, Drew is generating a lot of daily registrations. He's generating a lot of daily visitors and then some of them sign up for stuff and he hasn't pushed that side of it. 
um, but his daily uniques is one to two million. Yeah, so he has a huge. Uh, he's got a huge general reach. I don't know what um, you know the. I don't know what his stats on on registration are. You said he didn't push it. I'm not sure exactly what volume he's getting there. Um, I haven't talked. I, I don't think the the actual registrations is that high. I, I don't think he's really pushed the you know, people's incentives to to go ahead and register. Oh, I see a revenue opportunity for him. I know he lives a, a comfortable lifestyle, so I don't know if he wants to even delve into it. But there's there's definitely money to be made there. Any? Can you give a, a like a, a crazy out of the air ballpark figure on what that could generate for him per year? Um, well, I mean, let's say he was uh, he was doing. 10,000 registrations a day, and we were generating uh, 50 cents a registration. That's $5,000 a day. That's $1.5 million a year, roughly. Do you think is that a conservative, bad. or is that a what, what kind of? That, that'd be an average. That'd be an average uh, eCPM conversion. Now, the 10,000 registrations a day might be outlandishly high for him, or might be low. And, and, and you mean that's user registrations as in users signing up to his site, or is that in showing these to users as they click through news articles? Because that's no, I'd say right. I'd say that's user registrations on the on the click-throughs. It would be uh, a much lower CPM, although the frequency would be higher. I hate to even hazard a guess, but you know maybe there's another half million dollars in that form. So if he was to fix up his way users sign up to the site and really encourage them to register and then put them through this registration process, that's $1.5 million a year potentially there, and then putting them through occasionally in the advertising in a way that doesn't freak people out too much could be another half million. So he could mm-hmm. add on another $2 million in profits to his site every year. Yep. Don't call me. <laughs> I mean, it's humorous that you bring up Drew because he was a panel of uh, five folks, and he's a person that I've got on my list that I want to give a ring to in the next couple of weeks just to chat about okay. just this. So, Drew, if you're listening, I'll be calling you. He'll be reading the interview. He's on the yeah. um, All right, so in the beginning when you were talking, you talked about um, targeting and predictive models. Is that, was that what you were referring to, what you show, um, the kinds of offers you show users as they're going through the, the sign-up process? Yeah, we're, we're doing this on in two ends. So one is just um, what consumers have a propensity to pick. So they're just looking down the list and... And we're looking at them saying, hey, this is a female 35. They have a higher likelihood of taking the Better Homes and Garden offer than they do the Sears Siding offer. Um, however, we also use advanced predictive modeling for back-end conversions. So a continuity club may come to us and say, uh, we're going to share back files with you of who actually converts. So the first thing the, the targeting engine does is look at consumers and say, who has a propensity to convert for the book club? And then the book club passes back a file that says, hey, you sent us 10,000 people, 8,000 of them converted, and 5,000 of them were fantastic converters. So then we feed that back into the predictive model. So when we look at a consumer, we say, not only are you probably interested in this offer, but you're interested enough that you're probably going to convert well for the advertiser. So, so we have lots of con- – pardon me? You're doing scorecarding. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Uh, who do you work with? To, who who generates your scorecards? Is that Fair ISAC, or do you work with someone else? No, we do it all ourselves. So they give us. Uh, I mean, uh, we do that. We also work with um, some offline data companies. One of which is a company called Alliant, who aggregates uh, pay up rates from people like National Geographic, uh, BMG Music Club, and others. And then they create custom models and scores on people, so we have a propensity for people to pay their bills. 
so we can apply that to the uh, to the algorithm. But the rest of the algorithms are built. We have a staff of about half a dozen statisticians and mathematicians who this is all they do is build the models and advance the targeting. How long, how, did it, was that something like you introduced one day to the next? Like, did it make a big difference when you started doing it? Um, it, it so it's a, it's a constant iterative process. And what I mean by that is, you know, at first it was just, hey, put different offers in front of men and females, and then step by step uh, it got more and more complicated to now, um, you know, it's, it's actually it's so complicated sometimes you wonder where offers are or why offers are showing up. Um, but, you know, there's... The, the targeting engine is, is smarter than the rest of us in figuring out what people will likely want. So each time we make an advance, you know, add another data point on or something like that, it, it raises yields anywhere from usually 1% to 5%, depending on how advanced the targeting element is. It's hard, you know, once you get up here, once you get the easy strikes out of the way, it's hard to continue uh, to find mathematical ways to increase yield. But the specific one I just referenced, which was with Alliant, um, and using offline scoring, uh, scoring of consumers and consumer groups on offline behavior was actually a big mover because many of those players, many of those magazine companies couldn't make online lead generation work because too many people were signing up and saying, yeah, put me on the list and then send me a bill. And they wouldn't pay for their magazine once it arrived, so they'd be they'd bad pay-up rates. And for a magazine, that's, that's the, or a continuity club, those are the death knoll because they have a huge expense going out the door. It's not just, hey, the consumer signed up, but I put a mag and I paid Q six bucks to get this consumer, but then I put a magazine in the mail and I mail the magazine, so now I'm in for another three or four dollars. So if the person never pays their bill, I'm really out a lot. So um, you know, our ability to score those consumers and predict this group of people has an eighty percent likelihood to pay their bill, these people ninety percent, these people seventy percent, you know, what decile do you want to buy to? Uh, that was a huge move in the continuity and, and magazine arena. For many players, they just couldn't do the business without it. Did you? And so, is that that's all in house? You just find your own statisticians. You don't have any like magic formula or like like what data points do you bring in? Are you like looking up things on each user to, to determine stuff? Like, do you access any like Equifax databases or things in real time to, to make sure things work, or is it just based on the data that you have? Uh, it's Twofold. We do buy data from Alliant and some other players, not all of which we disclose. Um, most of it is done uh, behind the scenes prior to the consumer's arrival. So we take consumers and we can match uh, the likelihood of activity, et cetera, before they arrive. Um, but we do, do, we do some things on the fly, like we do behavioral targeting. If a person in our behavior is not, they surfed somewhere, but they actually took an offer. So maybe they took a... Um, uh, a fitness offer, and therefore we're going to show them a uh, health food offer next because we know the propensity for them to take one after the other is very high. So we'll do that stuff on the fly. We'll do a lot of the um, uh, the pay-up rates and a lot more of the advanced mathematics behind the scenes so that when they arrive, we can immediately peg them to a particular user group. Uh, but we can we can predict ethnicity. I can predict household income. I can predict likelihood to own a home versus rent. Um, a whole plethora of things. Hmm. All right. Um, is this the main part of your business? Like, are there other aspects of your business that we haven't talked about that we should? Um, that's the lead generation is the primary aspect, but we use the same uh, algorithms, the same approach in email. So, for instance, for a publisher, just like we monetize their registration path, 
we can also monetize their email. And we use the same logic of let's take a look at all the consumers, let's figure out what the best offer to match that consumer is on a given day. And the reason that's different from most other players is most players say, hey, I'm running you know, whoever it may be, all recipes. And therefore, I'm going to sell my entire list to Betty Crocker today, all, you know, whatever it is, 3 million people. Well, the reality is we can see, because we see hundreds and actually thousands of offers, that mailing Betty Crocker isn't the best thing to everybody. So one subsegment of that list is going to like Betty Crocker, but we can predict that another subsegment of that list is actually more in the market for uh, Walmart today and that more people will click, convert, and generate more yield on Walmart than it will on Betty Crocker. And so what we do is when we take a list, we score that entire list the night before and say, okay, if I have a list of 2 million, 50,000 get this piece of mail, 50,000 get this piece of mail, 150,000 get this other piece of mail, etc. And every night we mail all those out, we track the conversions, all that becomes intelligence back into the machine to figure out, okay, what are we going to send out on the next day? And so and how on earth do you figure out a user is likely to do something? I mean, all you have is their email address, or do you have more data? Um, well, usually we have more data because uh, when they go through these sites, we ask for the registration data, so we ask for the full data set. But for some subset of those people, the only thing we have is email. So for those people, we have to wait until they've taken an action before we can put them somewhere. So if all we know is they're on the All Recipe site, then my data level is very small, and I start sending them mail that I think we're uh, affects that or is appeals to that segment or that uh, contextual site. But as soon as they take an offer, then I start to see some behavioral history behind that consumer and I say, aha, they, they're starting to skew towards this behavioral group or that behavioral group and I put them in there and send more like emails like that to them. So those are the two primary business models. And then we're just starting to dabble in uh, banners. And the same concept is we're, we're starting to target banners based on this deep, rich data we have. So the idea is if you come to the site, you register, and if you use Q, we have the registration data. Um, if they went through the registration path, we have the behavioral data from registration. Um, if you're using us for email, we have responses in email. And then as they surf around the site, I know it's Joan Smith. I know she likes mortgage, or she's just taken a mortgage. She's just taken a car loan offer, and she passed up on the on the uh, Sears siding offer. So now what banner ad should I put up in front of her? So the, the amount of, of, pardon me? Is that able to generate enough volume? I mean, all the different behavioral approaches I hear always have problems with volume. Right. So when we buy in the open network, we have the same challenge. When I, when I try to buy in ValueClick or Ad.com or something like that, I have to run across my cookies. So volume is very difficult. But where we're a little different is, is if we handle the registration path for you, then obviously 100% of the people who came through registered, you know, all of the people who registered, I should say, we have data on. So there, the penetration and the overlap is tremendously high, as opposed to, hey, I collected random uh, behavioral data across the web. Let's see how many of those people run across your site. So it's two very different approaches. So I can't do volume. You know, if, if Walmart, which they do, comes to me and says, hey, I want to buy banners, I can't go out in the net and say, wow, I can find you 50 million people that have these behavioral characteristics. But if you run your own website, and you say, hey, I want to target people on my website, and I want to differentiate based on income, based on or even ethnicity if you wanted, but gender, whatever else. I can do that to a, you know 80% probably of the people who registered on your site because um, I'll have all the data on them. Now, some are going to wipe cookies, so I have to wait till I see them again so I can recognize them. But outside of that, you know, we'll have huge overlap. 
So does that mean that you then want to serve all the ads on someone's site? Are you becoming like a Zito, or how does that work? So, um, yes, we would like to serve the ads on a person's site, and then what we'd like to do is say, look, if you can sell the ads in at a higher rate than we can, you fill the inventory. If we can find ads better than you can, which we think over time we'll be able to because our targeting algorithms will constantly match the right offer with the right consumer, um, then we take the spot. So it's a relatively low risk for the publisher because the publisher gets to say, look, I've got my own sales force. We're doing a good job. We're generating, a, let's say, a, an average of a $4 CPM. We'll come in and say, okay, let us have a shot in there too. And if we can generate higher than $4, we'll take the space. If we can't gen- generate higher than $4, you keep the space. And so there's very little risk for the publisher and, and hopefully put large potential upside for them as a lot of different advertisers start to come in and not run of network advertising that they would get from every old network, but the stuff that would show up is very targeted because it's so based what, off this what demographic. What are you for advertisers? Are you, sh- are you taking people to landing pages or are you putting them through re- more registration processes? Um, those players, so off the banners, they could do either to a to a registration page for a landing page for a particular offer or just over to someone's site. So, you know, um, trying to think of another, you know, uh, Colorado Tourism may want to drive people back to their site, but they may have come to us and said, we only want people from, you know, the surrounding four states. So most of the time, a contextual site would say, well, I can't do that. We, since we have the registration data, would say, no problem. We'll target this ad only to people in the four states surrounding Colorado. Or even a better example, we take uh, offers where people have franchises and they may have 150 locations around the country and they want different ads in front of every one of them. That's a non-starter for most ad networks. For us, since we have the registration data, we say, no problem. You know, this, these leads will go to, this offer will go to the folks in Florida, this offer will go to the folks in southern Texas, et cetera. And the CPMs they pay, theoretically, would be substantially higher. So the banner network for us, this concept of the banner network is still in its early stage. We're just starting to test it out now. But from what we can see, it's going to be great. Have you um, heard about what Frank Adante is doing with the Rubicon project? Uh, not specifically, no. Hey, I did an interview with him um, a month or so ago, and he's creating like a, a network to handle stuff like yours. So basically a publisher like, let's say, Fark, can come along and say, okay, um, these six guys want to run stuff on my site. I'll put them all into into the Rubicon project, and then the Rubicon project will manage them all for me and, and then let whichever one is performing the best continue running ongoing. Because I understand yeah. that's so, actually a hard problem for the publishers is to keep switching all these different advertisers out. Yes, it's it's tremendously difficult. So that's a player, you know, the Rubicon Project or, you know, a Right Media Exchange or an ad ECN are all players that we'd be, you know, we'll probably work with. And all they're trying to do is facilitate exactly what we're trying to facilitate, which is let's take the burden off of the publisher to have to pick a particular ad network. Let's find some vehicle or a particular advertiser, let's find some vehicle that chooses the best for me on an ongoing basis. Right. What about fraud? Do you have problems with fraud? In the CPA networks, it's a gigantic problem where um, people are, are signing up um, for offers using prepaid cards and a, a bunch of other techniques, so they get a $20 commission on a $2 sign-up. Do you, do you mm-hmm. have that problem? Not, not that much. Um, and the, the primary reason is the, the way we run our publisher network is we don't have, we don't have a self-serve tool that allows moms and pops in. Um, we've contemplated it. We just have never built it. So all the publishers we work with, we have specifically hand-chosen. So the likelihood that one of them would commit fraud uh, is 
low because obviously they're going to get cut off from us. Um, so we don't have uh, the same challenges as many of the affiliate networks have where, you know, a publisher comes in and they don't worry about getting cut off by an affiliate network because they're only doing, you know, 100 registrations a day. And, and if they get cut off from one affiliate network, they'll hop to the next. Um, and we don't do a lot on the credit card side. Most of our stuff is uh, soft offers, meaning you sign up for a newsletter or whatever else. So there's not a lot of benefit for the random people to go sign up for, you know, 50 cent offers. They got to fill out literally thousands of them before they make any real money. Um, however, fraud is still an issue, um, and it's uh, fraud on two levels. One, you worry about individual publishers trying to goose their numbers by um, just typing in information. And then second, you worry about unbonafide users. So the users, for whatever reason, and trust me, I, I, sometimes I have a hard time divining why consumers do things. But for instance, we have mortgage offers, which are probably one of the most burdensome offers to get through in our registration path because you have to not only fill out your personal identifiable information, but you have to fill out a whole bunch of other information, financial, so a lot of different questions. And then you usually we usually use a triple opt-in on mortgage offers, so they get a third time and they get popped up a window that says, hey, do you really want to get this offer? We have people who go through all that work, go through the triple opt-in, submit it, and then when they get telephone call from the mortgage provider, the consumer says, I never signed up for this. Yet we have the record of what site they were on, the fact that they went through, you know, literally an extra 10 questions. Um, so we try to figure out and divine whether people are being, um, uh, putting in unbonafide information. So for whatever reason, they may feel compelled or they may feel, even though we've written at the top of the page that this has no impact on a promotion, they may feel that, well, maybe that does have an impact, so I'm going to fill out something anyway. So we build screens in the background to say, okay, is this really a person? Does this person match the address they're at? Um, is this Fred Flintstone or is it some other commonly used and constructed fake name? And oftentimes we don't even correct that on the front form. Like if we see someone who says they're John Smith from 123 Main Street, you know, we let them submit that. We just take it in and we can it in the background. Now, unfortunately, some poor John Smith who lives at 123 Main Street signs up for stuff and never gets it. But those are ones we predict are, are more likely to be fraudulent than real, so we just take them out of the system. And if we rejected them on the front page, sorry? I was saying if we reject them on the front page, then all the consumer does is keep getting creative until they find something we haven't discovered yet. So you you, you must be getting uh, lots of nice registrations to one two three Fake Street, which is uh, Homer Singleton's <laughs> fake address. We we do get we do get uh, lots of lots of uh, lots of different fake ones. Um, what I find interesting is is the the people aren't all that creative. When people make up addresses, you know, they the probably fifty that are the top fifty that everybody uses. Okay. Are there any uh, any any funny stories of uh, fake information people have put in? You know, <laughs> there are only funny stories in the fact that you you try to come up with all the different variations in advance, and yet you know someone always finds something. So I'm trying to think of one of the more humorous ones. We had Bart Simpson out there for a while. We finally took that out of circulation. But we just had one the other day that came in that was some fictional character. I can't remember off the top of my head what the superhero or whatever. And so obviously fictional, but we just hadn't thought to put it in the fraud filter. So now it's in there. So, so someone someone ended up buying leads from Darth Vader, and so that's when you, you keep finding those and you have to keep adding adding those to you. Your, your exactly. We have some advertiser who says, do you really believe Darth Vader's a real consumer? I'm like, oops, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. so um, I've oh actually I have one more question for you. Um, yes. The web two point web two guys. I mean, they're all out there doing flashy Ajax 
screens, um, you know, all sorts of really slick stuff, um, and not making any money. Um, and actually, I was talking with Drew about this just the other day, that there's three business models that I'm noticing on the Internet. There is um, websites that have a lot of traffic that don't make much money. There's um, very And there's a spectrum of, of aggressive to not aggressive to very aggressive direct marketers that, that really work hard to monetize users um, and sometimes annoy people, but, you know, some, mm-hmm. some, some do it less, like, like you guys, and then there's another end of the spectrum where they do it very aggressively. And then yep. those are the two that I could think of. And the third that Drew added in was then there's venture-backed um, startups that have a lot of money and are going to run out soon. Um, so that's, I mean, and talking to a lot of people, those are the, the models that I keep seeing. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the, how, how you think about these Web 2.0 companies. I mean, some of them are generating a lot of traffic with their really slick Ajax stuff. Uh, one mm-hmm. of them being Badu. Are you familiar with Badu? Yep. Um, and I, I, I'm trying to get some contacts in there and haven't, haven't managed to work it out yet. But I'm impressed with the, the amount of traffic and the stuff those guys are doing. And they have uh, basically no monetization on their site. I mean, how do you talk with guys like that that just don't seem to want to touch any of this stuff? Well, so ultimately, the, everybody's going to want to monetize at some point or another. And, and YouTube's a, a more popular example, maybe, that, that brings up the point that, you know, what they were doing was aggregating audience. And what the web is a little behind in is the ability to monetize um, the passive audience. And people crap on television all the time, and people talk about how great the search engines are. But the reality is search engines are just, you know, Google and Yahoo right now are just the giant yellow book. That's all it is. Consumers know they want a BMW, so they go there to find the BMW and they get the lead. And, yeah, they make billions of dollars, but those billions of dollars actually aren't all that much. I mean, that's billions of dollars. Let's not pick on it. But if you look at overall U.S. advertising spending, it's like $300 billion a year. And overall television dwarfs the web. And the reason is, is because television found a way, a compelling way, to monetize uh, media sites. So folks like YouTube, folks like Baidu, folks like um, even FARC, for instance, are challenged with the fact that the medium, the Internet, hasn't come up with a good way to allow advertisers to talk to consumers without interrupting the flow too much. So lead generation is one of those where, hey, we're finding a way for consumers to actually raise their hand and say, I want it to be marketed to in the future. But where the real money is going to be in the future actually is not lead generation. I mean, it'll always be a great niche, but the real money is going to be in how do I find a way in which I can embed advertising like a commercial on media sites? And so I think right now, it happened in 99 and it's happening again, people are aggregating audience together, feeling like eventually someone's going to solve this problem for me. So if I get a huge following, if I'm like Facebook or I'm like MySpace, then eventually someone's going to come up with a paradigm to allow me to monetize these folks. Um, and I think that's probably going to be a combination of, of uh, video um, and display. So when I say display, it's going to be displayed on the site, um, and it's going to have to be a rich media experience, so it's most likely going to be video. But no one's come up with the right standards and right implementation now that consumers have accepted in the same way they accepted 30-second advertisements. It'll happen. Uh, it didn't happen in 99, but it'll happen eventually. So I think that's what the these Web 2.0 companies are coming up with lots of flashy stuff and lots of cool user experiences are running into is they can aggregate the audience, but until someone solves this display element for them, it's just, uh, and it becomes commonplace and accepted by consumers, it's going to be difficult for them to monetize. So until then, I recommend they come to me and I'll help them out. 
So you, you don't think your model will be the, the lead generation model will be the one for the long term? You think it's going to be a, a midterm model? I, I think there'll always be a place for lead generation. I mean, the, the concept that someone goes and raises their hand and says, yes, I want to receive more from this advertiser is tremendously powerful. So there'll be a place for it. But you don't raise your hand and say, yeah, I want more for BMW until you've seen a BMW commercial, until you've been persuaded that BMW is the ultimate driving experience and you feel like you want to learn more about it. And so to do all that, I can't do that in a form. I need some rich media experience where I can show a car driving down you know, the forest and I can get a feel for the, uh, the Italian leather that's going to be on the inside or whatever else. Until I get that rich branding experience, um, you know, I can't drive uh, desires. All I can do is answer desires when people already know about BMW and I say, hey, you want to get a brochure for it? And they're like, oh, yeah, I saw a television commercial for that the other day. That's where we work. And that's where, quite frankly, that's where all the web works right now, with the exception of uh, some of the viral stuff and, and some of the um, uh, uh, display stuff. But generating interest is very difficult, and, and the web has not mastered it yet, which is why it remains a $20 billion segment instead of a $100 billion segment. And, and at some point, that, that's going to be cracked, and it will, the web will become a $100 billion segment. Yep. Well, I, 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 don't, I, I have no doubt about it. And the, and the math of people always complain about the fact that consumers spend more time on the Internet, but the Internet's not rewarded for that. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it. The reality is, is people spend more time on the web, but the web hasn't figured out how to present advertisers with the ability to advertise there successfully. And I think, you know, uh, Drew's reaction to, wow, I'll have a user revolution, is the challenge. I mean, people have now gotten used to the web being um, in the format it is and advertising being secondary. So until we sort that out with the consumer and find the right experience that they won't have a revolution about, um, the web will still be hampered. The web will still get a short on rev or advertising dollars relative to other mediums. Very interesting. Um, I know we're running out of time here. Is there anything else you want to add in closing? No, you know, I, I appreciate the call. You know, I think your, uh, your organization is a very interesting one, so I, I look forward to more interactions. And uh, lastly, I'd say, um, you know, I, just from our perspective, uh, we see just tremendous growth out there, um, both in the interactive space in general and in our lead generation space, but the key is to do it responsibly. So finding that right balance of feeding in advertising and um, but not disenfranchising the consumer. And to, you know, concerns about user revolutions of parked and stuff like that, you know, I think consumers have a greater tolerance than most people appreciate for advertising as long as um, it's at their option and they can delete it when they want. Very good. That's what I'd close on. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. All right, Adrian, very good talking to you. Thank you.